Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. We are going to be in John chapter 3 today. If you need a Bible, throw a hand up. We have a couple of happy volunteers running around with Bibles. We've got one just for you. And if you don't own a Bible, it would be our privilege to give it to you. Go ahead and take it home if you don't have one. Um, It is our joy to get the Word of God into people's hands. So, uh, if you already have a Bible and you know your way around, go to John chapter 3. If we're handing you one of these hardback black Bibles, turn to page 883 with the one we handed out. Page 883. I get the privilege of preaching today, amongst other things, the most well-known Bible verse on planet Earth. In fact, I can test you. If you've never been to church before, but you watch any football at all, you've seen somebody in the end zone holding up a sign that says what? And you'd think, for as famous as it is, you'd think, well, why is it famous? Is it the, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is, who doesn't love hearing that God loved them? Secondly, it's very theologically concise. In, in essentially a half a sentence, it communicates most, if not all, of the biggest parts of what makes the good news of Jesus Christ the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to push back a little bit today because I, I think it is a very Western 21st century microwave culture kind of thing to take one little verse out of an entire discussion and rip it out as if it stands alone. It doesn't. I want to prove to you today how critical the two verses in front of it are. Uh, There's a lot going on there. But to bring you guys along, what we're doing these eight weeks in this series called Saints and Sinners is we're taking a look at essentially three stories that John is going to tell us through chapters 3 and 4 of the book named by him. This is a story that we're in the middle of right now, a guy named Nicodemus who is religious elite. This guy taught seminary classes. He didn't just go to seminary. And he comes to Jesus with all these kind of questions. And the conversation reveals that even somebody who knows a lot about God in their head still has to have a transformative experience meeting God face to face. Amen? Those of you who know your Bible, Moses was really well educated, but he had to have God show up and reveal who he was to Moses. We see this all throughout Scripture. Do you know him? Do you actually know him and love him? And then we're going to hear two more stories in John chapter 4 of a woman and then later a man who we're going to see when we get there. All these reasons, these are not church folks. If they've ever been to church, they weren't welcome. If they came, they didn't stay long. Lots of Poor behavior. So Nicodemus and these two other people we're going to teach, they are polar opposites of each other. And John, the gospel writer, tells their stories back to back for a reason. And the reason is this. He wants us to understand saints and sinners both need Jesus. John preached in a context where people, like you, perhaps like you and me, that have done lots of bad things and don't have any problem admitting, yes, I've messed up, I've screwed up my life royally, I'm not good at running my life, Jesus, take the wheel, like all of that. That's John chapter 4. If you're willing to admit your brokenness and you need to know how much God loves you, that he will come and do relationship with you despite your brokenness, that's John 4. John 3, where we are right now, it's for the guy who thinks he has it all together. Right? Saints and sinners both need Jesus. That is the sermon, really, for this eight weeks. Today's 
sermon is entitled, It Has to Be This Way. If you'd uh, advance the next slide for me, please. Read the text with me. We're going to do verses 9 through 16. And I'm going to apologize. This really is one flow of thought, you know, really through the whole chapter. So for us to be uh, reading just 9 through 16 is already a tiny bit disjointed. As I always try to say, study it for yourselves during the week. Please study John 3. Feel free to read ahead. You'll know where we're going. Nicodemus speaking. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus just talked about being born again. You're born of a mother physically, but you have to be born spiritually. And and Nicodemus is a Bible guy, but he's confused. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. Really interesting plural there, don't you think? Did you hear that? You won't believe our testimony? Okay, that, that's, not, that's not only perhaps a reference to the triune God's testimony, but perhaps also a reference to John the Baptist. He's already told you this, he's been preaching this for months. You won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down... So if you were with us a couple months ago, that's his favorite title for himself. The Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Lord Jesus, if you don't soften our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we're going to miss it. So Jesus, please make Sunday, August 25th, 2019, the day that changed our family tree. Because that was the day back when great-grandpa became a Christian. He saw Jesus for the first time. And we've all been taught to love Jesus ever since then, way back when in 2019. Jesus, make today a day like that. In line with what your spirit ordained through John, this evangelist who so desperately wants us to believe. God, make it happen. And Jesus, for those of us who already love you, give us half the passion for our world as you have. The strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said. Amen. Note takers. Being born again starts with finding Jesus to be trustworthy. Did you know that? Right there in verse 12. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, I'm giving you a simple illustration. You're born of a woman. You're born in human life. You have human life, physical life. Great. That needs to happen again now spiritually, and it happens by the Spirit. He described last week, the text before. It's as mysterious as the wind. You can see the effects of wind, you can feel the effects of the wind. But don't try to tell me where the wind came from or where it's going. That's how mysterious salvation is, but the Holy Spirit does it 
and we are born again spiritually. That has to happen, and I'm trying to use these illustrations to describe it to you, and you're a teacher of Israel, and you've got letters behind your name, and everyone trusts you to give the Bible answers, and you can't even understand when I tell you that you have to come alive spiritually because you're spiritually dead in your sin. These are rhetorical questions. You're a teacher of Israel and you can't understand this? You can't explain this? Like, this is a problem. And where does the problem lie? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and you, yet you won't believe our testimony. If you don't believe me when I tell you about these things, how do you believe when I tell you about heavenly things? He's rebuking Nicodemus' choice to not believe. And maybe John the Evangelist or somebody like me would come along alongside these words and go, since when does Jesus lie to you? Like, why is Jesus not trustworthy? Why is the testimony of the Father and the Holy Spirit and almost certainly John the Baptist, why are these testimonies not trustworthy about who Jesus is? See, what's so unbelievably damnable about you and I not trusting God is that it makes this implicit statement that he's betrayed us somehow. Or he's ever lied to us. That's what's really so horrifying about our lack of faith. It's not just, well, I'm kind of struggling like, no. No, this is Jesus. He doesn't lie. He loves us perfectly. And to not trust is to say you are not trustworthy. And Jesus brings it up right here. Like, we're, testi- we're testifying you haven't believed. Like, what's... This doesn't make sense. Why would you not believe if I have told you? Secondly, being born again requires the death of Jesus. We heard that in verses 13 through 15. So mind you, the last thing that Nicodemus said was verse 9. How are these things possible? Jesus is going, man, I can't believe. How are you going to accept these things? Like 10 through 12 is Jesus kind of surprised, like, how on earth do you, do you not believe our testimony? But 13, he's going on to finally answer Nicodemus' question. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. So you want to talk about spiritual birth? Who can understand what the Spirit is doing, where the Spirit comes, or where he's going? Look, none of you, none of, no mere mortal who's not God, has returned to heaven and come back to tell us about these heavenly things. Those of you that were with us, we've already heard that the Son of Man, you're going to see the angels, What? Ascending and descending on him. This is about access to heaven. Jesus is the one who's going to tell us about spiritual realities. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but... (laughs) So apparently the no one is just you and me. But the Son of Man, meaning me, Jesus, has come down from heaven. Again, to all of that Discovery Channel baloney that Jesus never claimed deity... Black letters on a white page. Maybe red letters, depending on your Bible. That doesn't get any more clear. I came from heaven, yo. Has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted... So he's still answering the question, how are these things possible? How is somebody born again? He's answering that question. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I have to die for you to be born again. It has to be this way. 
There is no other way. Nicodemus, you're so good at keeping rules, but that's not going to work. You're so good at being good, but it's not going to work. You've memorized so many verses and you gave so much money to missionaries, but it's not going to work. Now, if you didn't grow up going to Sunday school, Jesus just totally left us behind in that illustration he used. So, if you've got the hardback black Bible we passed out, please turn to page 131. 131. Everybody else go to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. The book of Numbers, chapter 21. We need to do a quick aside to the story that Jesus referenced so we have the remotest clue what it is he's talking about. This whole snake thing, like where did that come from, huh? So, just to be clear, Jesus is a Bible teacher. Nicodemus is a Bible teacher. How many of you guys know if you get two, uh, you know, physicists in a room, they're going to use language the rest of us don't understand, right? No? I'm putting you guys to sleep today. Okay, let's try this again. Your two grandsons are talking about Pokemon. They are 11 and 9. They use their own language, right? You have no clue what they're talking about. I should have really thought through my illustrations on this one. Here's my point. Jesus and Nicodemus can talk shop in a way that you and I can't. They have Bible verses on their Bible verses. So we can get left out at times. Devout Jews knew the story of their people's history. They knew this story that we're about to read. We're just playing catch up so that we can listen in on this conversation. Chapter 21 of the book of Numbers, verse 4. Then the people of Israel set out, this is way back, but shortly after the Exodus, set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began to speak against God and Moses. It, now, for context's sake, I should tell you, we find out in other parts of the scriptures, God miraculously for 40 years did not allow the, the feet of the people of God to ever get tired. In 40 years of journeying, delivered from Egypt and not yet in the promised land. And for 40 years, their feet didn't get tired and their sandals didn't wear out. Anybody hit Old Navy and, and gotten a pair of these things for five bucks and they lasted 40 years? Anybody? No? 40 years? That's a miracle right there. No one ever talks about the flip-flop miracle. Anyway. And God is literally feeding them with bread from heaven that shows up on the ground every day. It says it was like a flaky bread and it was, it was sweet to the taste. So basically, God is doing an Old Navy and Krispy Kreme miracle every single day, and they still have the audacity, we're tired, we're bored. Can I go play on the Xbox now? Huh? So they're, they're engaging the miraculous every single morning, and instead of being re-amazed every single time that God fed them from heaven, instead of amazement and joy and worship, they're whining and complaining, and now attacking the spokesperson for God. Began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. That's actually not true. He's taking care of their needs. And we hate this horrible manna. Manna is a word that means what is it. And it's the description of the, the Krispy Kreme. So 
If God is feeding us and we say there's nothing to eat, like they just contradicted themselves. What they're saying is, what you have provided is totally insufficient. By the way, it's bread from heaven. Jesus is going to later say, in this gospel, I am the bread from heaven. They are taking God's miraculous, saving provision and saying, forget you, God. This is insufficient. This is, the New Testament equivalent is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus is not enough. The bread from heaven is not enough. It would have been better back in Egypt. This is a joke. I just wish I wasn't even a Christian anyway. This is better before I became a Christian. Could you imagine standing in front of Jesus and telling him that to his face? Because we're about to see poisonous snakes kill a bunch of people, and I don't want our 21st century enlightened worldview to start judging God. We need to understand how horrible the people of God are right now. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to him, and this is where it gets weird. Jews talked about this for hundreds of years because they weren't allowed to make graven images, and yet God told them to make one. Crazy. This is why you can't judge God by his own word. He's smarter than us. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Did we just make the top ten list of the weirdest Bible stories ever? Really? In an industrialized country like this, complaining is an Olympic sport. This is what we do. My food came to my table in 17 minutes instead of 14. All of Twitter needs to hear about it. Huh? And God's so angry at the complaining that he kills a bunch of his people? (laughs) What? And he fixes it. Instead of getting rid of the snakes, he tells the prophet to make a bronze snake and hold it up on a pole so they can see it. And if they look at it, they'll be healed. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Huh? Well, let's take a quick jaunt through what's critical about this story. Let's look at this chronologically. God's people rebel against him. God's wrath comes against his people. God's people repent. It's interesting. They don't repent like Pharaoh. If you know the book of Exodus, he doesn't say like Pharaoh, hey, get rid of these flies. They say, we have sinned. In English, first three words out of their mouth. That's a big deal. We have sinned. Please get rid of the snakes. Moses intercedes for God's people. Did you guys hear that? He has to talk to God about it. That's important. 
God heals people of the curse when they obey him because of their belief. I worded this very purposefully, this last one. He says the command he gives is to look at the snake. That's obedience. You have to do what he says. You look at the snake. And you are healed because of belief. You don't look at the snake unless you have believed what God said to you through Moses. He said to you through Moses, if you look at the snake, you'll be healed. You're not going to look unless you believe you're going to be healed. That's why I said there's such a dance between good behavior and faith. And we've got to keep looking at the scriptures to see how they work together. Here we are seeing somebody do the right thing. They're looking at the snake because they believe the God who provided the snake in the first place. Does that make sense? And Jesus is pointing to this story to talk about himself. So let's walk through all this one more time. From A.D. 30 till now and through the future. God's people rebelled against him. Uh, Yeah, has humanity rebelled against God? Genesis 3, all of humanity. Ambassadors, Adam and Eve, representing all of humanity, went ahead and rejected God for all of us. If you don't think you're a part of it, read the book of Romans, it explains it. We all rebel against God. And God's wrath comes against his people. I've spent a goodly amount of time the last 13 months trying to teach on God's wrath. It's his wrath that makes his love so beautiful. And so I've tried to spend a lot of time on that. We don't have the time today. But he is angry at all of the rebellion against him. Because when we rebel against God, we start murdering and raping each other. All of the law that exists in Exodus and Leviticus and doing all these things, don't do this to each other, don't do that to each other, don't do this to God, don't do this, don't do that. All these horrible things were unleashed when we purposefully severed our relationship with God. So what loving father is not going to be enraged when one child assaults the other child? Because you love the perpetrator and you love the victim both. Okay? So God's wrath is quite natural and it's proof of his love. When one child hurts the other. God's people repent. Provide us some salvation. Give us something. We have sinned. This is the part that might not mirror the new covenant at all. Because we sat in 400 years of prophetic silence before Jesus came. And most of us, based on biblical evidence... Most of us just wanted a military Messiah to show up and get rid of Rome. We see a few people at Jesus' birth that seem to be genuinely, humbly waiting for all of who the Messiah was going to be. But mostly, it was just a dark and rebellious world. Moses intercedes for God's people. He prays, like, what do we do about this? Jesus is our intercessor. Father, Son, and Spirit had a conversation before time began. Do you know that? I believe it's Colossians 1. The cross was not God's plan B. Oops, they did something wrong. I need to die for them. No. He predestined before the foundations of the world that his children, his church, were going to be made like him and it was going to happen through the bloodshed on the cross to wash away our sins. So, you want to talk about a type of Moses... Jesus was and is interceding to God the Father. Father, we've got to do something. 
The damnation of our children is not something we are willing to accept. What are we going to do? And they had that conversation before Genesis 1. Five, God heals people of the curse when they obey him because of belief. He says, I, the Son of Man, have to be lifted up. He's speaking of his crucifixion before it happens. The God-man, you want to know what it is to be the God-man? You're in control. If you look for it throughout the Gospels, you see a Jesus who's in control. There are times where people are going to kill him because they don't like what he said, and he leaves because it's not his time to die. There are times where they want to elevate him and make him king, and he leaves. Nope. Now's not the time. He knows that will also lead to his death. Yes, I'm here to die. No, is now not the right time. And he is going to be lifted up for all men to see on a cross. And from that cross until today, and then however long the Lord ordains that the church age lasts, people can look to him. And we will not look up to Jesus on his cross to find healing from sin unless we believe God that it'll heal us. It's been declared for 2,000 years. We will keep declaring it. Look at Jesus. Not just the guy petting sheep and saying some cool things about everybody being nice to each other. Look at the part of Jesus you don't want to see. Look, behold him there, the risen lamb. Right? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I what? All of my good works, I count them as loss. And I hate my pride. I hate it. To look at Jesus on the cross is something that I'm going to just go ahead and apologize on behalf of all Protestantism. We love to criticize Catholic brothers and sisters that their crucifix has Jesus still on it. And we go, Jesus isn't on his cross anymore, blah, 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 blah. Okay, can you be theologically correct and still be missing part of the point? Some of us don't consider the cross enough. How long was Jesus on that cross? Six hours. And yet the scripture tells us the entire weight of all of humanity's sin was on him. So you deserve eternity in hell, Dennis, for what you've done to the Almighty. I deserve eternity in hell for what I have done and said to the Almighty. Renault, same story. And billions and billions and billions of children that he wanted to purchase back, he's able to suffer that in six hours. If that's not stronger than strong, I don't know what is. We will not look to Jesus on his cross to provide forgiveness of sin for us unless we believe God when he says, look to Jesus. You don't look to you to wash you clean of your sins. That's an unbearable weight. That's a rat on a wheel, exhausted and never knowing if you've accomplished your mission. He's saying before he dies, you're going to have to look to me. I'm going to be lifted up. And this is critical when we dive into this story in Numbers and ask ourselves, wait, so you're saying that Jesus was typified by a snake? In Genesis 3, we see a snake is typified of, of Satan, of the enemy of God. How on earth would God in his wisdom 
allow a snake to be a symbol of the coming Messiah. Doesn't that seem off? Well, it's critically important. In his death, Jesus became the symbol of God's curse on sinners like you and me. Verse 2 Corinthians 5, 2 says, He who knew no sin became sin. If you can get your mind around that one, please shoot me an email. It's meant to be bigger than big. What? That as Jesus hung on the cross, the Father looked at him and he saw all human rebellion instead of seeing his Son. So we look up and we see a snake. Wait, isn't this the thing that just bit me? Yeah, every human has been bit by the snake of sin. We've chosen this. We've rebelled against our creator and poison. It's just a matter of time until you die. Do you know, I don't like being the bearer of bad news, but if it gets you into heaven, I'll do it. Do you know that you're spiritually terminal? If you have sinned, there is poison in your leg right now called sin, and it will kill you. And spiritual death is way more horrifying than physical death. Spiritual death means I will never be with my Creator ever. I want hell. That's what I want. I do not want to be. And how did I prove that it was volitional? Well, one, Jesus already told John, Jesus already told Nicodemus, you're refusing, you will not. You're refusing to believe. But when there's a snake up on a pole and you've already been told, all you have to do is look up. If your eyes stay down on the ground, you're saying no. It's willful. You and I are not victims of those snakes. If anyone's a victim, and he's a victim carefully on his terms and by choice, it is Jesus when he goes up and becomes a snake. He becomes a symbol of every dark and broken thing in your life and in mine. And he becomes that so that all of God's hatred for the snake gets poured out on Jesus. And then here's the part you thought I was going to preach and you were hoping I was going to spend a lot of time on. God's love is the reason Jesus died. Did you know that? If he doesn't love all the snake-bitten, Jesus... Loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the children of the world. And that's very beautiful and appropriate for our three-year-olds. We don't want to teach them the theologically accurate version. Jesus loves rebellious children. We have done such evil to our Creator and He hasn't stopped Him from loving us. Because that's what the father-child relationship is supposed to be like. I love you because I'm your dad, not because of your behavior. 
read with me John 3.16. Four. Huh? How many of you guys know that in English the word four is, answering, is like answering the because? The Son of Man has to be lifted up and die. Why does he have to die? Because God loved the world so much. Some of you are smarter than me. I grew up in church and I never asked why. Why does this verse start with the word for? He had to be lifted up. Why? Because God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So we see now between verses 13 through 16 that this gave means gave unto death. He didn't just give Jesus to come and teach some cool things and smoke a peace pipe. Christmas is the inauguration of Good Friday. They go together. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not die. So what death? I was bitten by a snake. That's the context of the death. I was bitten by a snake. I brought it on myself. I will die if I don't look up. What does looking up look like? Well, he just said, believes in him. Will not perish, but have eternal life. That's called amazing grace. I'm not just going to heal you. You're not going to just survive the snake bite. You're going to live forever after that too. Goodness gracious. That's a good God. Some questions for us to think through. If you already love Jesus, I want you to ask yourself this question. Will you leverage your influence to tell people what Jesus has done for them? Now some of you might think that uh, the sermon just pivoted right there and I uh, went into missions mode. That's actually right there in the text, believe it or not. Allow me to spell it out. Do you see how long Jesus talks? How much did Nicodemus say in our text today? How much did Nicodemus speak? One quick little question in nine, and then Jesus takes it from there. If you're a Christian and you're anything like me, you can be very timid about oversharing. Like, Getting into a conversation about Jesus, if you asked me a question, let's talk for hours. But if you didn't ask, I'm super timid. Like, I'm just going to make you upset, right? There are just certain cultural rules and social rules, and yet I want you to know your creator. Jesus yaks. Good yakking, by the way. But he just yaks and yaks and yaks of all this stuff that Nicodemus desperately needs to understand. And I believe he's leveraging his influence. See, Jesus is in the driver's seat in this conversation by one cultural norm that you and I may not think about. Who pursued who? You and I would not think about this. Western culture in the 21st century, we don't care. If we met for coffee, I came to your house, you came to my house, whatever. Maybe we feel it a tiny bit. If I reach out to Pastor Dennis and ask him for his time, he's probably going to assume that I'm going to bring the agenda because I've got a question for him or whatever. Um, there might be some cultural assumptions. But with rabbis, rabbi, this is critical. Rabbis pursued no one. 
Not the big rabbis, not the chief rabbis. The whole concept is that there's almost this mosaic ministry. I'm pursuing God. You can pursue me as I pursue God. Paul said the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. Nicodemus comes to him. So I'm going to keep talking until you get this. I'm going to keep talking until I've shared everything that you need. I know what you need. And I'm going to share. If you know who your Savior is. Are you thinking through and praying through and leveraging the places where you have been given influence? Some of you are grandma. And there are little kids or teenagers who will listen to you for only that reason. You are grandma. It is a sacred trust. When you have built that relationship, God has given that relationship to you as a sacred trust. Will you steward that relationship? Some of you are in the business world, and especially if you're a guy. If you're a dude over the age of 40, and you're in the business world, and you've got a, a 19-year-old young man, and his daddy wounds, actually with or without daddy wounds, every 20-year-old guy is looking to older men for identity and for belonging. Are you stewarding the influence God has given you in the workplace? Do you ask God before you put your work boots on and go out to the construction site, God, this day is yours. If you open a door, I'm going to walk through it. I would love to get to talk to you today in a culture where no one wants to talk about what? Politics and religion, right? We don't talk about those. We don't talk about it at the dinner table. We'll scream at each other online, but we don't talk about it in civilized conversation. So it's already miraculous for someone to be open and to openly start a conversation about spiritual things. Do you start your work day asking God to work a miracle and saying, God, I want to be a part of that miracle. Would you let me share today who you are? I know Melissa starts the work day that way. She's like, I got a bunch of pagans in the office. I need to tell them about Jesus. Um... This is a critical question, if you love Jesus. We are, Paul's going to tell us later, ambassadors. We represent the kingdom of God everywhere we go. Do we represent well? If you're a guest today, what are you going to do with the command to look up? I keep using that word on purpose to be really, really clear about lordship. Uh, the last half of the 20th century in particular, evangelicalism loved using this phrase over and over again, and it's true, but we kind of got out of whack. We asked this question, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? We kept using these terms, Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior. And yet, somehow, no matter how many times that phrase was used, all many of us heard was Savior. I like the idea of not going to hell. So the Savior part, bring it on. Him being in charge of me? Heck no. What are you talking about? And from a lack of clarity on this issue, the Lordship of Jesus over us, it is my belief, I could be way wrong and you can send me an angry email, it is my belief 
that we have presided over two or three generations of people who sit in their literal or proverbial pew and are not Christians because they will not allow Jesus to be Lord over them. They just think Jesus saves me. I kind of like, he's my spiritual buddy. He's my liaison with God. But his blood only purchased my forgiveness. It didn't purchase any kind of a position over me. It is my belief we have left some of this out. And so I want to press in. And if you today or later decide that you want to be a Christian, I want it to be abundantly clear in your own heart what you're signing up for. I am one, I don't know if you've picked up on it, I don't care exactly how many times we get the hot tub up here, and I don't care how many people we dunk. What I care about is five years after we dunk you, do you still love Jesus? And I might be all bent out of shape. I might be all out of whack. But I, I've been, I'm tired of saying goodbye to people I thought were brothers and sisters. It breaks our hearts to watch. And I can't help but thinking that somewhere along the line we failed to communicate to you in advance what it is to follow Jesus. God is not suggesting to you today to look up at his son. He is telling you. And you have 100% right to disobey him, to disregard him, and to allow the poison to kill you. That's your prerogative. And we talk about it because we don't want you to die. Any more than somebody once upon a time. There was a Sunday school teacher in 1986 that didn't want me to die. And so she shared the gospel with me. And my parents didn't want me to die. So they shared the gospel with me. Every one of us is just a link in a chain of faith that goes all the way back to Abraham. And I want to be clear. A Jesus who is so weak to kind of sort of maybe invite you into relationship with him, he's not strong enough to save you. This is the almighty God who is strong enough to pay for all human sin in six hours. That is a God who is strong enough to boss you around just a little bit, to be a little bit directive out of his love for you. Because you don't kind of sort of ask your three-year-old daughter to not run in front of a truck when she went out in the street. Oh, honey... There's a four-ton four truck, and you're out in the street, and you might get hurt. Like, she's already in the street. You freak out, you scream, you run, you grab the arm. And you know what? A three-year-old daughter, not knowing what just happened, she might actually be upset at mom for grabbing her arm. The audacity. And this is the Almighty God grabbing your arm. Look up. We like to make sure around here that we spend time responding to the Word of God. I put a list of possible responses up on the screen. If you're an elder or an elder's wife and feel comfortable so doing, would you mind positioning yourselves around the room as prayer counselors? If you want somebody to pray for you and with you, now is a great time to do that. If you want to pray in your seat, Great time to do that. Do not allow, if God something, said something today to you through his word, do not walk away and allow whatever shows up here. You're going to be at lunch doing this. There's a thousand different things to set your mind on. If God told you something today, 
Write it down in your notes. Share it with a friend. Talk to a prayer counselor about it. And say, what do I do? I have no idea what to do with this. God told me to do something, but I need help. And these people are here for you. I'm also here for you. I'll be up here. If you have never before today, in your own heart, you're realizing today is the very first time you've believed that Jesus is actually the Savior he said he was. And you say, I have considered the cost. I have weighed the cost of not being in charge of my life anymore. And it still looks better over there with Jesus. And you want to be a Christian. And I ask you to come find me over there and come talk with me. It would be my privilege to talk with you and share you with you what some of your first steps in the Christian life should be. To, give, to help you orient. Or even if you're not totally sure. Hey, what would it look like to become a Christian? Come talk to me. Actually, anybody here would be thrilled to talk with you about that. We're going to take these moments to pray and to respond to what God has said to make sure we are not, as James says, hearers only of the word, but doers. And then I'll be back up in a little bit to dismiss us.